thank you for listening to the weekly message at First Baptist Church in Bushland, Texas. Glad that you're here this morning. Hopefully you got a bulletin when you came in. Have the opportunity there to uh, stay awake, fill in some blanks. Um, and then hopefully at the end, if you're a guest, of course, we've invited you. Thank you, Noah. We've, we've invited you to make that uh, tear off your offering back to us. And there's an opportunity to let us know of any commitment in your heart that the Lord's called you to. And then hopefully there may be an opportunity uh, for you as well after that. There's power in small groups. There's power in community. Power to, to, change, to change your life. Someone once said, you become like those you spend the most time with. You become like those you spend the most time with. I spent some time last night with a couple of people. Yeah. That's actually me over there. I'm supposed to be Prince. We were at a fundraiser. Panhandle Independent Living Center. Uh, people kept asking me who I was, so I finally started saying I was Liberace and Prince's love child. Yeah, that's what I finally... That's Danny Richardson there and and, uh, and his wife and my wife. And uh, we kept trying to find a 10-year-old boy in pajamas to take a picture with Danny last night. But sorry, that's that's not good. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Hopefully that's not our future, but let's look at the Word of God in Proverbs 13. verse. I know he's dead, but that's funny. Ten-year-old boy in pajamas, that's funny. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with the wise will grow wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. In other words, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. If you hang around with those who are passionate and positive, who are faith-filled, you hang around with those kind of people, you will become more passionate. You'll be more positive in your thoughts and in your words, and your life will be more positive. If you hang out with those who are full of the Holy Spirit and of God, you will become more faith-filled. It's, it's a fact. The wisest man in the world said it inspired of the Holy Spirit, and it's true. You cannot soar with the eagles, someone said, if you run with turkeys. can't be done. If, you, if you're hanging out with people who are negative and critical and smug all the time, people that have bad attitudes, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to get sucked down into that way of thinking, into that way of living. You show me your friends and I will show you your future. You know, there's basically three types of pro- poverty. Uh, Christian sociologists have said there's basically three types of poverty. There's material poverty and everybody pretty much knows what that is. Material poverty. There's spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty. People who do not know Jesus as their Savior, they're spiritually impoverished. They, they're, at the, they're at the bottom level of living in this life and certainly beyond the bottom level into the place that the Bible says was created for the devil and his angels, his demons. They're spiritually impoverished people. There's lots of people who are not spiritually impoverished. They've trusted Christ as their Savior. But the third type of poverty is relational poverty. Unfortunately, there are lots of folks in the church, lots of folks who show up on Sunday mornings who are relationally impoverished. And it's sweeping across, it's sweeping across the Western world more and more. 
in our culture and even into the church. It seems that the more material blessings that we acquire, the more possessions that we have, the more we're losing the blessings of deep, intense relationships. There are a lot of theories as to why, and uh, one of them in our society, in our culture, is that we strive for independence, don't we? We strive for independence. People say, I don't want to depend on anybody. I don't want to need anything. I want to be independent. But can I tell you something? To be independent is distinctly to be non-Christian. God did not create us. He did not wire us. He did not call us as the church to be independent. It is not a godly thing for a Christian to, quote, go off the grid. I don't care about the power grid and the banking grid and all that kind of stuff. It is not godly for Christians to go off the grid in the relationships. It is distinctly non-Christian. Jesus died for us. He died for the church. He loves the church, and together we are to serve one another, to pray for one another, to love one another, to lift one another up. To be independent is really to be distinctly non-Christian. Some of you are new to the, to the Baptist tradition. We're not really traditional in the, in the old traditional sense of it, but Probably regardless of what kind of denomination you grew up in, if you grew up in church, you probably used the phrase to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I've said that hundreds of times, thousands of times. You probably have to. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's true, isn't it? It's true. You've got to have a personal relationship with Jesus. But in the New Testament, it's incomplete. That's not the end. It's not the end. God didn't call us to just a personal relationship with Him. We should never settle for just a personal relationship with Him because He's given us, he's given us something to add to the riches of a personal relationship. He's given us a shared relationship with Him. Pastor Jeff quotes from the New Testament quite often, where two or three are gathered in my name, say it with me, there am I in their midst, Right? And that is true. It's true. It's powerful. It's powerful in worship. It's powerful in prayer. It's powerful in community and in small groups. There's, there's power to it. What's even better than experiencing God on your own is experiencing the glory and the power and the majesty and the goodness and the character of God in the context of deep biblical community. The reality is very, very few, very few in the local church, certainly in our culture, very few experience the power of God in shared relationship. We have so many, so many of us have so many material blessings and we we are relationally impoverished and we don't even know. Why, Why is that true? What causes, what causes relational poverty? I'm not smart enough to make this up. There are authors that have written. What causes relational poverty? They say increased mobility does. The average American moves once every five years. Once every five years. If you're under the age of 40, your average is more like three years, they say. Increased mobility. You just bounce around a lot. You never really get to know anybody before it's time to bounce around again. Modern conveniences. Modern conveniences. They write about the fact that before the air conditioning was invented... 
and, and, and proliferated in every home, what did people do in the evenings, especially in the spring and the summer and the fall? Where'd they go? Outside. Remember houses, the, the porch, the porch around the front of the house oftentimes, and sometimes the sides, oftentimes was bigger than the bedrooms, wasn't it, in those old houses? People went outside. Um, the uh, attached garage versus the detached garage. You know, it's possible today, it's possible today to pull up to your house, push your garage door open, or drive in your garage. And, and in the old days, you had to get out and walk to the house. But we can go in our house and get plugged into our jammies and our favorite chair and our, our remote control and never even meet our neighbors, can't we? We can live in a neighborhood for years nowadays and never meet our neighbors. You remember in the old days before voicemail and answering machines? What happened if your phone rang at your house? How did you know who was on the other end of the line? Listen, kid, you actually had to answer it. You had to answer it. And then my dad had an answering machine early on because he hated talking on the phone at night, right? And so we got an answering machine and people would call and there was no caller ID early, right? And the phone would ring and we would gather around the answering machine. <laughs> dad, they can't hear us through the phone lines. Don't answer it, don't answer it. I made the mistake when caller ID first came out. Sometimes I didn't know it was out. And I was working in a church in Louisiana, and I would accidentally dial the wrong number, and I'd figure it out while the phone's ringing and hang up, right? And they would call and say, did you just call me? No, I didn't call you. What are you talking about? I, I'm pretty sure you just called me. Well, how could you tell? I, I didn't call you. I had to repent of lying several times when caller ID first came out. Voicemail now. How many of you screen your calls on your cell phone most of the day? At least 50% of your calls coming in, you don't answer them during the day. Come on. You know it's true. Your text messages. Some of you turn off the read, you know, the delivered and read option in your iPhone, right? Because you don't want people to know. You don't want people to know. The other problem along those modern conveniences is individualized, an increase in individualized forms of entertainment. Now, I'm only 47 years old. Some of you are much younger than that. A few of you are a little older than that. But you remember what we did when we were kids if mom said, you, you better entertain yourself because this is driving me crazy. What did we do? We went outside and we played with who? Anybody available, right? <laughs> if you were seven and the closest kid was 17, you tried to figure out some kind of, kind of game to play, didn't you? You went out and you, you knocked on doors, didn't you? So-and-so home? Nope, he's not here. He's with his daddy. Cool, I don't care. Go to the next door, right? We, we knocked on doors until we found somebody in the neighborhood, didn't we? Not anymore. Mom dad says entertain. The kids go and get their iPad out or fire up the video game or, or whatever. And that, that has weakened the natural flow of relationships. The third, the third cause of relational poverty can be a rise and is a rise in social media. Now I love I love the blessings of social media. My business, I'm a salesman, I, and, and I keep up with customers with text messages and email, and they know my phone is beside the bed. If something blows up at night and they can't get a hold of our uh, operations team, that I'll jump in regardless of the time of day. And, and I love social media. I love seeing pictures of you and your kids and what's going on in your life. Um, some of you have way too much time on your hands, but that's okay. It's cool. It's entertaining. I'm just saying. Um, but it's not the same as face-to-face -face contact, is it? One author says it this way. Social media is creating an epidemic of deferred loneliness. Social media is, is creating an epidemic of deferred loneliness. 
You got a photo, you throw it on Instagram and you just wait because you're bored and you're lonely and you just wait for somebody to like it or you put some comment out there and you want to see who thinks it's cool and and you've got 400 face, uh, friends on Facebook but too many people don't have even a single person that they can call when their heart is full and they need to connect with somebody. The problem is social media doesn't eliminate the loneliness. Loneliness. It just, it just pushes it out, doesn't it, and defers it. Well, our key thought for today is this. You ready? You, you actually might be one small group away from changing the course of your life. You might be one community away from changing your destiny. You might be one, men, one men's group away, one women's group away, one life group away from changing your life, from experiencing life in such a way, from connecting with a group of men or a group of women or some other couples, connecting in such a way that when you're low, they're down there with you. When you're up, they're up there with you. When things are going on at work, they're in there with you. When, when you're trying to be the best mom and the best dad that you can, and still for some reason your kids are, have, have found themselves wayward, you, you are one small group away from having someone that you can laugh with and cry with and pray with and grow with in that shared relationship within the body of Christ. How many of you, how many of you guys are connected to our men's group? Can I see your hands? Come on. There's more than four of you. You're plugged into our men's group. Isn't that one of the coolest groups you've ever been a part of in your whole life? And I don't mean cool because we got some extremely... Uh, uh, socially struggling people in there, okay, like me. I don't mean cool as in like middle school, high school cool, you know. I mean, it's one of the most meaningful groups that I have ever been a part of. We, we laugh most weeks until we cry. I've had drool on my chin before, laughing and not being able to feel my face, all right. We play golf together, and we, 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 we have coffee together, and we, we dream about playing golf together and going on vacations and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it is an intense group. We're a little bit more subdued on Sunday morning in the life groups, you know, when we spread out into to different life groups. But it's just as intense. Well, it's not just as intense because our wives are there. You know what I mean? They kind of they keep us under a little more control when, when they're with us. But being able to invite people to your home to watch a, a ball game, to watch a fight, to just engage with you whatever you're doing, whether you're eating barbecue or, or Mexican. you got to eat. Why would you eat alone? That, we, we, we just don't do that. There's no reason to eat alone when you're a part of an incredible group. Let me ask you a question. Do you want or do you need some intimate, deep, rich? Anybody need some fun relationships in their life? I, I do. I do. When I'm on the road, I'm not gone usually for more than a week at a time, but when I'm gone for a week or so, and I'm away from my wife and my girls, and I'm away from my men's group, and I'm away from my life group that I'm a part of, when I'm away from what God is doing in my neighborhood and in this church and in this community and in this city, something's missing. And I'm a blabbermouth. I'll talk to anybody. I go into restaurants and sit near the door so that if somebody makes eye contact, I might have an adult conversation that doesn't revolve around business that day. 
but I don't have a deep relationship with those people, even if the conversation becomes interesting, because the relationships that God has put in my life that make me better and make me want to go deeper in the Word and make me more positive and a better dad and a better husband and a better salesman and even sometimes a better man of God happen right here. But they don't happen by accident. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 46. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 46. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You want to be a part of a modern day, first century, New Testament, powerful group of Christians? I I do. I, I need it. I want it. You want to be a part of that? You don't just stumble into it by accident. Your wife may make you go on Wednesday nights because you're bringing the kids to Awanas or to a youth group. And you stumble into the men's group. But if you really want to engage in one of our life groups or one of our women's groups or our men's group, or maybe God's calling you to create a community, to create a small group, to lead it out of your home. And it may not be on the official schedule of the church. God may be calling you to do something like that, but it doesn't happen by accident. You have to do it on purpose. You have to be intentional about it. You create an atmosphere where the love of Christ flows through the laughter and the tears. It flows through the mountaintop experiences and through the the valleys of the shadow of death. You create by commitment and by choice and by time together. You create a small group. And it it can literally change your life. But what are the three qualities? Let's move through these quickly. What are the three qualities of great Christian communities or great Christian small groups? If you're taking notes, here they are. Number one, the first quality of great Christian small groups is we have refrigerator rights. You have refrigerator rights. Somebody has refrigerator rights. Do they they come to the front door? Well, they might depending on the layout of your house, but typically they come through the garage, right? They come through the garage through that kitchen door right there. They, they don't knock on the door, many of them. They just come through and they make themselves at home. My little brother comes over, one of the men in, in our group, and they want something to eat. They just get it fight night. I don't worry about stressing and hosting. I just get on the floor in there in my spot, and the guys come in and they grab what they need out of the cabinets. They throw stuff in the microwave. If, if, if they don't like what's out there, they get something out of the fridge and warm it up, whatever. Why? Because we have refrigerator rights with each other. Now think about how weird that would be if you didn't really know me and you invited me to your house and you said, be there at 6 and your garage is open and I came through and you kind of hear something but you're not sure what it is, but it's me. I've opened the fridge. I'm making me a ham sandwich. I take my big backside and climb up on your counter, you know. You come in the kitchen, you're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm sorry, did did you want me to get you something too? (laughs) 
would be a little weird, wouldn't it? Why? <laughs> that, that wouldn't happen, would it? We'd set a time, and I'd come over, and I'd knock on the door, and we'd sit down in the living room, right? And, and, and we would show some restraint and good manners and, and, and all of that, right? Why? Because you only have refrigerator rights with people, that, those with whom you have a deep, trusting, intimate relationship. That's what refrigerator rights is. Did you catch it in verse 44 in Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2, verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. There's togetherness. Like I went together to the World Series in St. Louis with 50,000 Screaming Cards fans. I was together with them. The word here together means together, not just in space, but in heart and in mind. In heart and in mind. They were together and had everything in common. We're such a family that everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine. Let me ask you a question. Outside of your relatives, how many people do you have refrigerator rights with? Think of it another way. How many, outside of your relatives, how many people have refrigerator rights with you? If you say two or three or four, can I tell you something? If you say two or three or four, you do not have all that God intends for you to have. Can you picture the church at Antioch or the church in Jerusalem under Pastor James or the church at Ephesus or Philippi or any of those places? Can you picture any of those churches where they just had two or three people that they could, they could share their heart with and not just post on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter? They had deep, intimate relationships. They had refrigerator rights in their life. You may be relationally impoverished this morning and not even, not even know it. Now, this is, this is kind of hard for, for ministers, right? I mean, in the old days, they used to teach us to be above reproach. I mean, Scripture says that. You've got to be above reproach with those that you're loving and pastoring and ministering. And that used to mean you've got to protect the pastor's mystique, right? You ever seen those ancient churches where the pulpit is like way up in a tower? And the minister would have to climb up there for the homily and literally... It was, it was symbolic that you're to be above the normal people, the mystique. Can I tell you something? The ministers in our church are normal people, right? Well, maybe not Asher. He's, he's, he's more than normal. He's not abnormal. He's more than normal. <laughs> we... We've decided, led by our pastor, we've decided to open up our home, to open up our hearts, to take some risks. Granted, I almost got beat up the last fight because I was the only guy going for Chris Weidman, the young guy. Everybody else in my living room, there's 30 guys in my living room, they're all cheering for Anderson Silva. And early on, Chris Weidman starts to beat him down and he knocks him down. And I get up to gloat and I accidentally put my hand on the remote and turn everything off. You, some people say you could have heard a pin drop. Not true in that instance. People in my home were yelling obscenities at me. Some of them that were lifting their hands earlier in worship were yelling obscenities at me that night in my living room. It, Weidman wins the fight later, but if he'd have won it then with the TV off, I would have had to change churches the next day. I, I mean, it would have been, it, it would have been over. We, we, we throw ourselves out there. We take risks. We're vulnerable. Why? Because not taking those risks, not having those relationships, that is far greater than the risk of having what God intends for, for us to have. Amen? 
We must have refrigerator rights with people because that's how God made us, to depend on Him and to depend, depend on each other. The second one, the second quality of great small groups, the second quality of great small groups, we all have flawed feet. We all have flawed feet, some more so than others. Some of you guys are sitting around at home in just your basketball shorts and somebody knocks on the door and your wife doesn't say, get your shirt on. She says, quick, get your shoes on, right? <laughs> you got some hammer toes going on. You, some of you guys, I've noticed after basketball, if you guys have taken off their shoes, we play basketball on Sunday nights, 35 and up, uh, no skinny guys, no young guys, 35 and up on Sunday nights down at the gym. We haven't been able to enforce that yet, but some of the guys take off their shoes and I'm like, dude. You can tap 110 words a minute with your toes, man. <laughs> we all have flawed feet, don't we? Look at Romans 15, 7. We all have flawed feet in our small groups. The Apostle Paul says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. When we're accepted in the context, and we're loved in the context of deep relationships in the community of the body of Christ, notice what else he says. Paul says, it brings praise to God. It brings praise to God. I told you a little bit, not much, about the fun that we have in our, in our men's group, in our small groups. And can I tell you something? We've got, we've got flawed feet. But we don't make fun of our flawed feet in front of one another like in our Wednesday night group. Some of us struggle with anger. and Some of us struggle with a foul mouth. And some of us struggle with lust. And some of us struggle with pornography and with booze and in our marriages, in our checkbooks. And we, we, we recognize in there that we all, we all have flawed feet. Remember the story of Mephibosheth? Look at 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 13. Mephibosheth. In the ancient world, they believed if you had a disability that you, you, you had sinned. That there was some sin that caused that. Notice what it says about Mephibosheth. It says, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. He ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. Because of a previous relationship, we won't go there, the king, King David's taken care of Mephibosheth. He lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His ancient society rejected him because of his struggles with his disability. But he got to eat at the king's table and he was crippled, the Bible says, in both feet. We, we all have crippled feet. But guess what? When you're eating at the king's table, you, you don't see the feet, do you? Because the table of the king covers our flawed feet. It covers our flawed feet. Listen, when we get together in the power of God's small groups, we're covered by the table of the king. And the Apostle Paul says to be accepted in that way is to bring praise to God. Well, lastly, since we're using unusual metaphors today, why not end with one? The third characteristic of great small groups, great community, is we fight lions. We fight lions. Look at 1 Peter 5.8. 1 Peter 5.8. Daryl quotes this a lot in our men's group. 1 Peter 5.8. He said, be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like what? A roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You ever noticed in the Bible the correlation between the devil and cats? No, I'm just kidding. Cat lovers, I'm just kidding. Sorry. 
sorry. Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I'm sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said that. What's he saying there in 1 Peter 5? We have an enemy that wants to pick you off. The devil doesn't want to entertain you. The devil doesn't, the devil doesn't want to make your life better. And John 10 says he wants to steal from you and kill you and destroy you. That's what the devil wants to do. Listen, the Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. But in our small groups in the body of Christ, we fight lions. Now, don't go there now because our, our Internet might blow up. But have you seen the battle, of, the battle at Kruger on YouTube? It's been, seen, it's been viewed like 78 million times. 78 million times. It's like eight and a half minutes long. Go to it later. The battle at Kruger. There's a watering hole, and near the watering hole are like six or eight lions, like a pride of lions, right? Here comes this water buffalo. Here comes his son, you know, up to the water, and they're heading down to the water, and they go, "Uh uh-oh, lions. The lions start to creep, and then father and son start to leave, and the lions pounce. Have you seen anybody seen that? 78 million times. The dad's like, run, Forrest, run. And the first couple of lines that get there take this little baby water buffalo off into the water, and then here come the other lines, and they're grabbing the water buffalo. And then an alligator, a crocodile, comes up and grabs the foot of the water buffalo. You're watching it like, oh, this is over. It's over for the water buffalo. It just, who's going to eat him? That's all that's left to decide. But here's what the lions didn't realize. <laughs> here's what the lions didn't realize. <laughs> water buffalo stick together, right? Water buffalo stick together. And eventually, the pack comes back, and there's some big dogs at the front, and they start picking off the lions one at a time. They start letting go of the baby water buffalo. And, and before you know it, the pack is there behind, but there's one or two, of the, maybe the dad buffalo or these other buffalo, water buffalo. They're jumping in. They're picking off these lions and picking off these lions and picking off these lions. Finally, they let go of the baby water buffalo, and the lions run off, and here goes the baby with the pack. He's kind of got a bum wheel, you know, because of the crocodile. But what, what's the point? If water buffaloes can stick together like that, don't you think the church of the Lord Jesus Christ can do the same? Absolutely. And we do it. When Satan strikes, we stand together and we fight. We, we're in there with one another. We don't roll over. We don't, we, we, we don't shy away. It's not that we stand in our own power, but we stand in the power of the risen Lord. Amen. And we stand together and we fight lions. Because you don't want to fight cancer alone. You don't want to fight the devil jacking with your marriage by yourself. If one of your children wanders off, you don't want to be out there looking for them by yourself. You want the power of the shared relationships of the body of Christ. And the way you get that is plugging into a small group. Because when you're alone, you're vulnerable. Some of you are vulnerable right now. But you're one small group away from changing the course of your life. When you have it, it's rich. When you have it, it's rich. People look at you and they look at the love and they look at the joy and they look at the laughter and they look at the fighting that you do when it calls for it and they look at the acceptance of the flawed feet and they recognize that they don't have refrigerator rights with anybody and they say to those believers, I don't know what you believe, but I want what you have. Look at John 13, 35. And we're done. And Jesus, Jesus, His words come to life, John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you what? If you go to church with one another? No, not if you go to church with one another. If you go on mission with one another? No. 
It doesn't even say, by this men will know you're my disciples if you worship with one another. It says, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Some of you today don't, don't have this. You're relationally impoverished and you don't even know it. You're, you're one small group away from changing your life. And this is the place to do it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of some real obvious truths, to be reminded of them through the power of your Holy Spirit in this place after worshiping you in such intensity. God, we're, we're not made to be alone. We're not made to just have a personal relationship with you. We're made to have a shared relationship with you. God, thank you for the power that's in these relationships, the lives of our men and our women and our teenagers and our kids and through the couples in these life groups. God, thank you that our pastor sets the pace that we're all just real, normal people that need you and need each other. God, as you call us to commitment today, to go deep and to investigate these truths. God, help us to intentionally do life together and love each other. That a lost and hurting world will know that your disciples want what we have, give their lives to you for your glory and for their benefit. God, move in our hearts now. Move in this time of commitment. These men and women are here to pray over those. Maybe there's a couple here that needs to say, boy, I've been in this church for a while, and I love Paxton, I love Jeff, I love this church, but I am not plugged in. I've got no refrigerator rights with anybody. May that couple or that individual, Lord, step out and be prayed over by these men and women of God up here. Father, if there's someone here who is not just relationally impoverished, but spiritually impoverished, they don't know you as personal Savior. May they step out today as well. May they give us the opportunity to share with them how they can know for sure that they have eternal life. How they can not just be a part of this time together, but a part of this family together through Jesus. Father, if there's a couple or a family said, well, I was going to join today, but the pastor's got God. Help them to step out and join this family of faith where we do life together. Thank you, God, for loving us. As you call us to a time of commitment now, we say yes, Lord, in Jesus' name.